Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. Then directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Before I came to Harvest, I've mentioned this at a few points in time. There are always good stories to draw out of it. Before I came to Harvest, I was a bivocational pastor. I served as a pastor, but my full-time occupation was with a marketing company. Um, I then pastored uh, in the surrounding hours of my day. Uh, specifically, the company I worked for it did apartment marketing. We marketed for apartment companies, and then I was also the director of marketing for our company to try to shape the way that we would reach new clients uh, for our business to help them with their businesses. Now, this was going really well. We had made a lot of mistakes, uh, but through a lot of uh, process of trial and error, we had learned to do what we were doing quite well. And along the way, we had a coworker who had previously run his own standalone business uh, of marketing and wanted to then come work with a bigger company, but he had a, a law firm that he had been working for and still servicing to some degree. And he said, you know, they're having some issues. Could we just bring that business under what we are doing? We've learned enough about marketing. We could do this. Now, I thought that was a good idea. I was actually really excited about it. I was confident. We had learned to market for apartment companies, for our company. How different could a law firm be? Well, this was a huge mistake. Uh, very different as it goes. Uh, I didn't understand, first of all, that lawyers have specific laws about how they may and may not do marketing. So I was just putting stuff out there, and they were saying, whoa, 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 you can't say that. You can't do that. And so we had to get on the same page about that. This is a particular company that had tried to rise the ranks of the search engines, and, and because of what they had done and who they had worked with, they got some penalties from Google, and we had to dig out from underneath that. Uh, and then also, what was the big, those issues would have been simple enough to deal with, over time at least, but the bigger issue was that I frankly didn't understand their business. I didn't understand the way that law firms work. See, I, I had leased apartments in the past, so I ha had some understanding, and I had rented apartments. I would showed apartments, and I had rented apartments myself. So I knew something about how that worked, but I didn't know anything really about how the law worked and how legal clients came into the business. Ultimately, it was an absolute disaster. 
We didn't know what we were doing. We were eventually fired. It was a big waste of time. And along the way, we lost focus. Along the way, a lot of the times that I should have been spending continued to working and developing what our company, our core business was doing, I was spending a lot of time putting out fires for this one-time ad hoc client. Through this process, I learned a lesson about what many people call mission creep. Mission creep. It's when you have a core mission or a core business, and you start to stray from that. You start to do things that are vaguely connected to, and you can maybe justify them, and maybe they seem like they'll be easy wins, low-hanging fruit. But eventually what happens is you get distracted, you get pulled in a lot of different directions, and you don't do the kinds of things that you're trying to do all that well because it's outside of the scope of your mission. We're coming to a passage today, right after in the previous passage, Jesus identified his core mission. If you remember last week when he talked to a Canaanite woman, he told her very clearly, back in verse 24, he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his mission. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The question then is, what's he doing with these Gentiles? On a one-time basis, he healed this Canaanite woman's daughter in the previous passage. But now Jesus continues to work among the Gentiles. What's happening? Is he getting distracted? Is he getting pulled in different directions? Is he suffering from mission creep where he's forgetting about the main mission that he was sent into this world to accomplish? Well, in fact, what we're going to see in the passage today is that what Jesus is doing is not outside of his core mission. The mission actually involves two parts. First of all, it involves Jesus being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as a part of that, Jesus must continue on to reach all the nations. Our big idea this morning is this. The son of David will fully bless the nations. The son of David will fully bless the nations. Now, three parts to our passage today. First of all, care for the Canaanites. Care for the Canaanites. Number two, compassion for the Canaanites. Compassion for the Canaanites. And then third, Covenant blessings for the Canaanites. Covenant blessings for the Canaanites. Well, in the first section, care for the Canaanites, in verses 29 through 31, we read in verse 29 that Jesus went on from there. Again, he had gone in the last section into a Canaanite region, a Gentile region where he met a Gentile Canaanite woman. And we read that Jesus went on from there and that he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Now that's, the Sea of Galilee is still pretty far north. And depending on which side of the Sea of Galilee you're on, you could be in Israelite territory or you could be in Gentile territory. Matthew is content to sort of let us remember that we had been in Gentile territory and to suggest that we now still are in Gentile territory with Jesus. But if you look at the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, Mark tells us exactly where Jesus is when this all unfolds. He's in the region of the Decapolis. So Mark is very specific that we are still in Gentile territory. Matthew just sort of implies it. Mark specifies it. Jesus is continuing his ministry among the Gentiles. Now, last week we talked about what this might signify. Specifically that this might signify that Jesus 
In the previous passage, when the very first person he met when he started to venture into the territory of the Gentiles was a Canaanite woman concerned about her family, we said, well, that sounds like something. That sounds like the Old Testament. That sounds like the beginning of the conquest into the land of Canaan when the spies started entering in in Joshua chapter 2. And the very first person they meet is a Canaanite woman concerned about her family, Rahab. Rahab who happens to be the ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because she believed in the God of Israel, she was enfolded and grafted into the nation of Israel, and she became an ancestor to Jesus himself, an ancestor to David, and then ultimately to the son of David, Jesus. And so as this starts again, as Jesus now repeats the story of Israel in many ways, and he repeats the beginning of the conquest into Canaanite territory, the first person he meets is a Canaanite woman We're seeing the beginning of Jesus' own conquest into the land of Canaanite territory. But it's so interesting how he does this, because he doesn't just go there and then depart. He continues on, and so we read at the end of verse 29 that he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, that doesn't sound terribly impressive. Okay, just a little bit more geographic detail of where Jesus is and what he is doing. But Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down there is the same description that happened in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus was teaching Israelites, he went up on a mountain, just like Moses, and he sat down, in other words, to teach, again, just like Moses. He's showing the people that he is a new Moses. And again, he began teaching them from the law and teaching them the demands of the law. Now here we see Jesus doing the exact same things, but this time not to a group of people who would have cared at all about Moses. He's doing this among Gentiles. He's repeating the ministry that he did among Israelites, and he is doing this for Gentiles. Now this is what we have to ask. Has Jesus fallen into the trap of mission creep? Has he sort of learned to do one kind of ministry among Israel and sort of taking that? He says, hey, maybe I can expand what I'm doing here. Maybe I can get a few easy wins and low-hanging fruit and try to expand this into Gentile territory. Has he drifted? Has he been distracted from his main mission? And again, the answer is no. The son of David is not distracted. He's not confused. He is doing exactly what he came to do to start among the people of Israel and then to expand his reign among all the nations. So look what happens next in verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Now again, at many points, we've seen Jesus heal Israelites. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus went up on the mountain to teach in Matthew 5, verse 1, well, in Matthew 14, verse 14, we read that Jesus healed the crowds of the sick among the Israelites. But then also, if you remembered hearing what I read as I read this entire passage, you know that this passage is very quickly moving toward the feeding of the 4,000. Earlier, in the feeding of the 5,000, which was among Israelites at the time, Before the feeding of the 5,000, if you look back at Matthew 14, verse 14, Jesus healed the sick. He went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So Jesus was healing right before he fed 5,000, and now he's healing again right before he feeds the 4,000. 
But there are a few other things that we need to notice here. One of the things that is happening in this passage, because Matthew is trying to show us that that Jesus hasn't gotten off course, he hasn't gotten distracted, but that he is doing something very specific, is that Matthew is showing us, very deliberately, although subtly, that Jesus is establishing his reign over the Gentiles, his authority over them. And one of the simple, subtle ways that Matthew does this is by describing the crowds as bringing all of these blind, crippled, mute, lame, many others, and putting them at the feet of Jesus. To be at the feet is a place where you might sit at the feet of a a ruler, of a great teacher, someone who is in authority over you. And so one commentator points out that by bringing these people to his feet, they are bringing them in humble submission to Jesus as he begins to establish the reign of his rule, his dominion over the Gentiles. Now, through this, remember, he's building on that Canaanite woman's confession. Remember last week when the Canaanite woman came to Jesus, she didn't just say, Jesus, can you help me? She hailed him as Lord, son of David. And we talked that week, that's a remarkable thing. If this is the son of David, that is, if this is the heir to the throne of David, if this man is like David, what did David do? Well, he shed the blood of Canaanites, trying to drive Canaanites out of the land of Canaan, so the Israelites might enjoy the kingdom of God unharassed by the Gentile nations. This Canaanite came to Jesus, hailing him as the son of David and asking him for mercy. Jesus is the king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, but the way in which this conquest is happening, the way in which the kingdom is coming to the land of Canaan, into Gentile, Canaanite-inhabited territory, is entirely different from what we saw in the Old Testament. It's not marked by an external warfare. It's rather marked by a spiritual warfare. The question we have to ask then as we start to look at this passage and see Jesus' continuing conquest of this land is how much does Jesus really care about these Canaanites? Why is it that he is doing this for them and how deep does this care go for them? You know, as I think back onto the previous uh, business, the story that I was telling you that, that I was involved in, um, as I think about the way in which um, our company developed our own strategies for marketing for apartments and for marketing ourselves, this was not something that I originally cared that much about. I don't know of any child who grows up wanting to do apartment marketing, but I came to care about it a lot. I came to have strong opinions. I came to be passionate about it. Why? Because as part of a startup company, we developed what we did through trial and error, test and refine, iterate and reiterate process. And so I really came to be passionate about what I was doing. But I hadn't gone through that with a legal firm. Again, I was never a part of a a law firm. I was never a lawyer myself. I never even went to law school. I'd seen people play lawyers on TV, but apparently that's entirely different from the law that I was involved in. And because I didn't take that time to understand the business, the process that this worked, I didn't really care about it that much. Now, perhaps I could have if my life had been different or if I had really wanted to dedicate myself to legal marketing, but I didn't really care that much. We took this client because we thought it would be easy, because we thought it would be low-hanging fruit. It'd be really quick to just take our old bag of tricks and just recycle them for this new client. And because we didn't really care that deeply about their business, we failed. 
We thought we cared enough, but when push came to shove, we didn't have the level of care for their business that they needed us. Now, I think we have to ask this question about Jesus. Again, we've seen him start to recycle and to reuse some of the things that he had done among Israel. Is Jesus just taking his old bag of tricks and recycling them among a new people? Maybe he's frustrated at the reception he's getting among the Israelites. The religious teachers have begun to poke at him and ask him questions about things. Does Jesus really want to get involved, get his hands dirty with these Gentiles, or is he just frustrated and wandering on and wanting to maybe get some easy wins? We have to ask, what significance do the Gentiles have for Jesus if we are to understand what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus just offering them one-time ad hoc care, or is something deeper at play? And in fact, there is. Jesus doesn't have ulterior motives. At the end of the day, he has deep compassion for these Canaanite people among whom he is ministering. This brings us to the next section, compassion for the Canaanites. Now, this brings us into the section of the story where Jesus is going to feed the 4,000 people. And there are a lot of similarities. Again, Jesus is repeating a lot of the same ministry, but again, we have to ask why. There are a couple of similarities to what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 back in Matthew chapter 14, but let's start with two differences. When Jesus fed 5,000 Israelites, the people there were hungry after only one day of Jesus' healing ministry among them. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, we read, Now when it was evening, in other words, when the day had come and now had gone, well, that was when they recognized the people were hungry and should be sent home, but then Jesus told them how they were going to feed that crowd before they left. These Gentiles here, when Jesus is feeding this Gentile crowd in a Gentile region, we read Jesus telling them that they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Probably these people brought some food with them, and apparently their food supplies uh, have been consumed, and now they are hungry. The last time, it was the disciples who suggested that Jesus send the crowds away for food, but this time, it is Jesus who is pointing out their need for food. The disciples said, hey, and maybe they were hungry a little bit too, Jesus, we got to send these people away. we got to get them away because we need to eat, they need to eat, everybody needs to eat, send them home. Jesus here, at the end of these three days, is the one who points it out. Maybe the disciples are too embarrassed to ask again. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. There are differences, but there are also similarities. Jesus is still unwilling to send away the crowds, and most importantly, did you catch that word at the beginning of this description? Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. We get part of our answer here. Jesus isn't discharging his duty. Jesus is not suffering from mission creep. Jesus is not distracted. He is not confused. He is not looking for easy wins or low-hanging fruit. Jesus has compassion for these people. He's not just caring for them in the here and now to move on. He has deep compassion for these people. Now remember, Jesus had compassion for the Israelites too. It's very interesting though, in Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000, that Matthew simply tells us about Jesus' compassion. Here in Matthew chapter 15, we hear this off of Jesus' lips. You wonder if that was for the benefit of the disciples, who perhaps wondering, what on earth are we doing out here? 
Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. So Jesus is doing this not from just a sense of duty or whatever else it might have been, but because he's moved to compassion. But again, the disciples, these poor disciples, have no idea what's going on, and they ask the same question. They must be sufficiently confused. What are we doing here? And they ask the same question they asked earlier. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place as to feed so great a crowd? Now, they might be asking this because they're confused about two major differences between this setting and the last setting. You see, in chapter 14, when Jesus fed the Israelites, we know that he was repeating an Old Testament miracle. In the Old Testament, God fed the Israelites bread in the wilderness when they were coming out of the land of Egypt. But there was never a similar kind of miracle for the Gentiles. Why would Jesus be repeating an Old Testament miracle that never was? He did it for Israel, but why would he do it for these Gentiles? Another reason they might be confused is because of what Jesus had talked about with the Canaanite woman in the previous passage. When he told this woman that it is not right, back in verse 26, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, again, dogs were a term for Gentiles, but the word that Jesus uses is really more of a, a little dog, a lap dog, a pet dog. The woman says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She understood what Jesus meant, and by faith she laid hold of the promise that he had implied to her. But there's a real question here. Crumbs might be enough to feed a single Canaanite woman and her daughter, but could crumbs feed 4,000 people who were there for this feast? The major question is, okay, we know Jesus cares about these people. He's starting to heal them. We know Jesus has compassion. He said it. But just how much compassion does he have? How deep does this actually go? And maybe the way to think about this is what does Jesus actually want from this interaction? You know, there's an author that I've read and I've learned a lot from. His name is Cal Newport. Um, he's not a Christian, but he, he writes a lot about different things that I, I found helpful. Uh, one book that I read a while ago about career paths, I've, I found helpful. I've recommended it to a few people who are trying to think about what they should do with their lives and their work. Uh, maybe some of you young people are wrestling with, or maybe some of you older people are as well. It's a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. It's a really helpful thing because he talks about this idea that's so prevalent in our world that you should just follow your passions in life. Follow your passions. And what he says is he says that's terrible advice. And he contrasts this idea of a passion mindset versus a craftsman mindset. He says a passion mindset is really not looking for some, is really looking for what a particular job will do for me. I'm talking about my passions because I want some job to fulfill me at a very deep level. And he contrasts that against what he calls a craftsman mindset, which says that I'm not looking at what is in this for me. When I have my job in front of me, I want to do whatever I can to grow so that I can serve other people as well as possible. If new opportunities arise out of that, later great. But I want to do everything I can to bring value to others. And what he talks about in this book is that the passion mindset might jump from opportunity to opportunity to opportunity, trying to find that low-hanging fruit, the easy win, what's going to make me happy today? Whereas the craftsman mindset is not looking for easy wins, it's looking constantly for areas to grow where I am today. And yet, 
with that kind of mindset, the bigger wins eventually come. You might not win in the short term, but you win in the long term because you give your life to a steady kind of growth. Now, for Jesus, the mindset is similar, but it's importantly different. It's a contrast not of passion versus craftsman. It's a contrast between passion versus compassion. Jesus is not just following his heart wherever he will go. He's not distracted. He hasn't just lost his way and wandered accidentally into a Gentile territory. Jesus is guided by a compassion that is seeking to meet the deepest needs of these people. He has come to serve the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but that was only meant to be a staging ground to a wider invasion, to bring the gospel of who he is, the Son of God incarnate, to be crucified and raised from the dead for sinners, to bring that message not only to Israel, but to the wider nations of the earth. Why? Because Jesus is guided and motivated by love. But again, we have to ask, okay, so he cares for them. How much? Well, the depth goes down to compassion. But how deep and how wide does that compassion run? And that's when we come to a key question. The fundamental difference between Israelites and Gentiles is the Israelites have a covenant with God. If the disciples are confused about what Jesus is doing, and they probably are, it's because they understand Jesus to be the Messiah for Israel. But the Canaanite woman understood something that went beyond that. She hailed and confessed Jesus as the son of David. And the question is, how do the blessings for Israel's Messiah come to benefit the nations? If Israel has a covenant, but the Gentiles do not, how then would the Gentiles benefit from what God is doing through his Messiah, Jesus Christ? And this brings us to the third section, covenant blessings for the Canaanites. Jesus is going to press beyond the divisions between Israel and the nations by showing how his covenant, the covenant that he has come to bring, will bring blessings for the nations. Now look at what happens here in, in this last section. In verse 34, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. Again, just a few crumbs of food. Not enough to feed this people. But then in verse 5, we read, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. The word here for directing is one of those other subtle places where we see the reign of Jesus, the son of David, being extended to the nations. Because this is a word that, as one commentator puts, is reminiscent of military chain of command, ordering the people to sit on the ground, like a great ruler to his people. Again, they're sitting again at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, the son of David, is expanding his reign and his rule. We ran, then read in verse 36 that he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Those four words that I tried to enunciate well, he took, gave thanks, broke them, gave them. All of those four words appeared earlier in the feeding of the 5,000, and they will again appear significantly when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant at the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes the bread. He gives thanks for the bread. He breaks the bread. He gives it to his disciples, and they eat with them. The reason those words appear in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, as well as at the, at the Lord's Supper, is because all three of those fe feasts are pointing beyond themselves 
to the great messianic feast, when God, according to His covenant promises, would lead His people into a feast, a banquet, that He would celebrate with them forever. And what's so shocking about this second feeding, Matthew didn't get bored and just recycle old material told slightly different. This is an absolutely significant second feeding because the shocking thing about this is that this is for Gentiles, not for Israelites. Jesus is bringing the covenant blessings of Israel and he is delivering that to Gentiles. Gentiles have been invited to the feast, but of course, if we know our Bibles, we know this has always been the plan. This has always been the hope. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, one of, the place, one of the many places where this feast is foretold in the Old Testament, we read, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just Israel, but for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of, well, or of aged wine well-refined. Jesus, the Lord of hosts, the Son of David, is setting on the mountain where this is taking place a feast for all peoples who have gathered to him. But again, what are they going to get? Are they just going to get a few table scraps that have fallen from the table for the dogs? Well, in verse 37 we read, they all ate and were satisfied. The word there is they were stuffed. They were absolutely stuffed, like you'd stuff an animal or something like that. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, in the previous feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And we talked about the fact that that number 12 is probably not accidental. There were 12 tribes in Israel. So for there to be 12 baskets of leftovers said, this is symbolic for saying Jesus is feeding to the fullness all the tribes of Israel. Well, what about these seven? Well, seven is another number of fullness and completion. You think about the seven days of the week, a full week. So maybe the symbolism is that Jesus is feeding a fullness, a fullness of peoples. But I think the commentators who understand this to be a direct reference to the nations who are in the land of Canaan are a little closer to the mark. You know, there's so much of back and forth between this passage and the initial conquest into the land of Canaan. I think we have another reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Now, this is before the conquest had started. This is Moses standing just on the other side, the far side of the Jordan River, right before he would die and right before Joshua would lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. And in that last sermon that Moses gives to the people, he declares to them this. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. Well, what would they do with them at that time? Well, Moses went on and said, You must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. The conquest at that time, when they went in to attack the seven nations who were in the land of Canaan to dispossess those lands, that was a ministry, a work that, the, that David, the original David, would take up as he continued to drive the Canaanites out of the land of Israel. But now here we see Jesus 
the son of David, feeding Gentiles where there are seven baskets full of pieces left over. And what is he doing? He's not establishing no covenant. He's doing the opposite. Jesus is showing how the blessings of his covenant are going to expand to all the nations of the earth. You see, the conquest of the nations, the conquest of the Gentiles is on. Jesus is repeating Israel's history, but importantly changing it. Where Jesus has not come to shed the blood of the nations, Jesus has come to give himself over for his own blood to be shed so that he might liberate the nations who are oppressed under the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is bringing the Gentiles into God's covenant people. Well, the application of this passage is this. Trust in the compassionate covenantal care of the Son of David. Trust in the compassionate covenantal care of the Son of David. You know, you think, it's kind of interesting as I was working through this passage, it's interesting as you see the development of this. You see Jesus begin to care for the people. And you ask, well, how deep does that go? And you see his compassion. And you ask, but really, what are the dimensions of that? How broad, how wide, how deep? And then you see that flow into covenantal care. It reminds us of what we actually need. We need something more than care for our immediate problems. So often we go through life and we feel, my life would be better if I could just get someone to care about this problem in my life to fix it for me. But of course we know that if that problem were solved, there'll be another problem, and another problem after that, and another problem after that, and another problem after that. Our lives are filled with challenges. We need something far more than care for just whatever problem I am facing today. But we need something also more than compassion. We need something more than care. We need compassion. But we need something more than compassion. You see, misery loves company. When I am suffering, I want someone to come and be miserable with me, to show me compassion, to suffer alongside me. I want someone not just to care for my problems. I want them to be compassionate for me. But at the end of the day, we also know that all the compassion in the world, if it won't bring me into the kingdom of heaven, then it's all worthless. As much as you might commiserate with me, show me your empathy, sit with me in my darkness, if you can't deliver me from my greatest problem in life, namely that I am separated from the love of God outside of Jesus Christ, then it's all worthless. What we need more than anything else are the covenant blessings of God given to us, extended to us, held out to us by the Son of David himself, Jesus Christ. This may not be the major problem on your radar, but it's the major problem in the Bible's radar. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12, Paul explained exactly the situation the Gentiles were in. He said, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What you need more than anything else is to, for someone to solve that problem. Not just care, not just compassion, but a covenant. And what Paul goes on to say in the very next verse is that this is the problem that Jesus Christ came to solve. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, Christ's conquest meant that he would shed his blood. He did not come to shed our blood. He came to shed his blood so that we might be spared. Now again, maybe this chasm separating you from the love of God has never been on your radar. Maybe you think like most modern people that I don't have a problem with God if there is a God. I'm fine. I'm a good person. I'm better than that, those other people down the street that I might be thinking of at the moment. But the Bible is consistently shining light onto the real problem of our souls. That because of original sin, because our first parents ha- were, uh, fell into sin, we were born guilty behind the eight ball. We were born with a corruption that bent us away from God and toward all manner of increased sin beyond that. And Jesus came not merely to care for you, to heal a particular sickness, to solve a particular problem, not merely to show you compassion as though what arose from his soul were the only thing that mattered, but Jesus came to extend far beyond that to establish a new covenant on better promises, a covenant that he would accomplish by laying down his life once for all as a sacrifice for sins. A covenant that blew the doors of the gates of God's kingdom open so that Gentiles may come in. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. This morning I want to ask, do you feel unseen, unknown, uncared for, unqualified, unaccounted for, unloved? Do you feel excluded, overlooked, forgotten, and forsaken in this life? Do you feel separated, without hope and without God in the world? Understand what this passage is showing you, and we have to read the rest of the story to see how it plays out. But what this story is showing us is pointing forward to the fact that Jesus Christ came for sinners like you. Jesus Christ came to bring everything for you because he knew that you were not capable of bringing anything aside from your sin. And he promises that for all those who turn from your sin and look to him in faith, whether or not you were born in the biological line of descent from Abraham himself, whether you were Jew or whether you were Gentile, all have been made into a new man in Christ Jesus who come to him through faith. If you come to him through faith, you will be saved. You will be included. So come to Jesus this morning. Come to find life. Come to find joy. Come to find peace. Come to be engrafted into the family of God on the basis of the better covenant blessings that Jesus came to establish through his own shed blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ crucified, that he would be our hope and our joy and our salvation. We pray that for all those who know him, that your word would establish us again on that bedrock, unshakable foundation of the gospel of Jesus. And for any who do not yet know him, Father, that you would be using your word to stir their hearts, to prick their hearts, to show them their great guilt and the chasm between your holiness and between them. And that you would lead them to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.